The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up at Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 2nd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sorry, I should say, it is now Monday, November 2nd in the East. To quote Joe Buck announcing yesterday's World Series game, don't worry, no Mets today, or until spring for that matter, they lost to the Kansas City Royals. So congratulations to the Kansas City Royals is a weird thing that media people say, as if the Kansas City Royals are listening or care or need my congratulations. Another weird thing that media people say is, what is your Secret Service code name? Or should fantasy football be legal? Or is this a comic book version of a presidential no, campaign? A Hearing these crazy questions, the GOP candidates banded together, shunted aside the Republican National Committee, and put their demands to the TV networks. Dave Weigel of The Post got a copy of this letter. It begins, Dear Blank. This letter is on behalf of the 15 Republican presidential campaigns. Whoa, wait, ho, ho. 15, that means that includes Gilmore and Pataki. They invited their advisors to the room. Actually, the Post reports that 13 campaigns met to draft the letter. We can assume they didn't have to order an extra sparkling water for the Pataki guy. All right, but they do speak on behalf of Gilmore and Pataki. The letter goes on. Based on the evaluations of previous debates, the campaigns wish to have, in all future debates, a minimum 30-second opening statement, minimum 30-second closing statement, candidate pre-approval of all graphics, and there will be no lightning rounds because of their frivolousness or gotcha nature, or in some cases, both. I love the lightning round. That's where you discover who smoked pot, the last time a candidate rode a subway or flew coach or swiped left, or what was the last book a candidate read. Sometimes they have to ask it now, other than the Bible. Lightning round questions humanize candidates, get them off their talking points, so I could see why the candidates hate that. The opening and closing statements are the worst, they're just talking points, so I can see why the candidates like that. And a gotcha question is a concept that is stupid and non-definable. Any answer is a gotcha answer if you screw it up enough. And no question is a gotcha question if the answer is good enough. If I were a network, I'd say, sure, no gotcha questions. Just don't endorse snake oil vitamins or drive Hewlett Packard into the ground or be unable to articulate how you are different from your brother in foreign policy. Then there's no gotcha. There were some more demands in this letter that debates should be under two hours. I'm for that. Here are some other things the letter asked. They all wanted the networks to accede to the following no's. Will you commit that you will not? Now, I know the Republican Party is trying to get out from under the label of party of no, but this is how they framed it. Do you, TV network, commit that you will not allow for hand raising, yes, no questions, no lightning round, no candidate-to-candidate questioning, no props or pledges, thus eliminating Carrot Top from future GOP debates, no showing an empty podium after break, parentheses, describe how far away the bathrooms are, 
No showing a dry sink from the bathroom. Parentheses imply that a candidate did not wash his hands. I made that one up. No use of behind shots of the candidate showing their notes. You know what? How about no behind shots at all? I know Jeb has cut out carbs, but Mike does seem like he's back to digging his grave with a knife and fork. And finally, no reaction shots of members of the audience or moderators during the debates. And I wish they'd just add also no reaction shots of the dramatic woodchuck. Let's hope for the sake of democracy and John Harwood's Q ratings that everyone acquiesces. So today's show is going to be a little bit different because this is the week that 6,000 federal inmates, mostly low-level drug offenders, are being released. We want to give over our entire show, well, other than that they might be giant song at the end. We want to give over our entire show to a fascinating professor of criminal justice. So here now, part one of an interview in two parts, mass incarceration, the reality and the challenges. Mailing your letters and packages has just gotten a lot easier thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can mail and ship anything, anywhere. Yeah, even other countries starting with Z. And you can do it using your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. And it's really easy. Anyone could do it. Just click print and mail. So let's say you, you look up a company that starts with Z, Zimbabwe, Zambia. There's a setting right there on the, on the stamps software. And then you weigh the thing and it knows how much postage to affix. Postage that you buy and print. Official U.S. postage that you buy and print from your computer. Put it on the thing. Give it to your mail carrier. And that's it. You never have to go to the post office again. Right now, sign up for stamps.com and use my promo code, the gist, for this special offer. A four week trial, $110 bonus offer, includes postage and the aforementioned digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. On the occasion of the release of 6,000 low-level drug offenders from federal prison, President Barack Obama spoke in Newark today. He talked about the problem of mass incarceration, and just identifying mass incarceration as a problem is in itself a statement. It was a statement that Obama clearly was unafraid to make. It's good for everybody. It means less crime. It means less recidivism. It means less money spent on incarceration. It means less wasted taxpayer money. It means police aren't having to arrest the same folks over and over again. It means young people are seeing in their community people who are working. That in turn creates economies in those communities that are legal and not just illegal. So the United States represents about 4.5% of the world's population, houses 22% of the world's prisoners. The population of jailed Americans has been going up as the crime rate has been falling. Now, critics of mass incarceration say, see, that shows you don't need to keep so many people in jail any longer. The crime rate's going down. But proponents of longer sentences and stiffer penalties say the crime rate is falling exactly because so many bad guys are now locked up. As a New Yorker, here's what I know. In 1990, there were over 2,500 murders in my city. This year, it will be a little over 300. That is astounding. 
A lot went into that change, but I've got to believe that New York State increasing its prison population by almost 50% from 1990 to 2000 played a role. But New York, unlike other states, actually has been releasing more prisoners than admitting in the last 15 years. The U.S. overall went in the opposite direction. So joining me now is John Pfaff. He is a professor of law at Fordham University. His research focuses primarily on empirical matters related to criminal justice, especially criminal sentencing. Hello, Professor Pfaff. Thank you. So you remember the bad old days. I do. I was in Chicago when the crime drop just started dropping. And it was rampant. Yes. And in 1994, the crime bill passed and incarceration went up. And how much of that is related? I think the 94 Act gets far more credit than it deserves. Mm -hmm. Incarceration started going up around 1975, 1976. And if you sort of look at the trend before the 94 Act, the trend after the 94 Act, not much really changed. And I think that's because one thing that's lost in a lot of our debates right now about prisons is that the president and Congress, they really can only affect the federal system. Yes. And the feds are about 12% of all prisoners. So 88% are in the states. There's really not much the feds can do about those 88 uh, percent. And, you know, the 94 Act gave some money for, for making sentences tougher, but there's not a lot of evidence that really changed much that was going on at the state level. But I look at those two facts, those coincidental facts. So many more people in prison, the United States has so many more people as a percentage than anywhere else in the world, and yet this coincided with the crime rate plummeting. How related are they? I think we need to break it into two different phases, right? So crime starts going up in 1960. Prison populations don't start going up until the 1970s. And from the 70s until 91, both go up together. Crime mm-hmm. rises and prison rises. In 91, crime starts dropping. Prison keeps going up. Uh, I think in the 70s, very low prison populations, very high crime rates. I think prison really mattered then, right? We just weren't attacking crime the way we should. I think prison, you know, made a difference. Estimating that's actually very hard. It's very... Empirically, it's a very difficult area. There's lots seem, of disagreement. Yeah. But the better studies, and there are ways to separate the better from the worse, suggest that probably about 25 to 30 percent of the crime drop came from more people being in prison. Now we're in the opposite phase, low crime, high prison. And it's almost surely the case now that that you know, 1.3 millionth person going to prison is nowhere near worth the cost of sending them to prison. That just the financial cost and also just the way prison disrupts someone's life, that it's, it's now at an inefficient level. The crime rate and the prison rate didn't perfectly coincide, but I would assume there'd be a lag. I mean, just logically, you start locking prisoners up. You don't see the effect of the crimes they would have committed not being committed for a little while. The incapacitation factor should actually be pretty quick. Right. right? They're committing a lot of their crimes in a fairly narrow age. So when you lock them up today, they don't commit that crime tomorrow. I think what incarceration did during the 70s and 80s is it slowed the rate of growth. Right? You see both going up, but the question is, and people use that to say, look, prison doesn't work. Crime went up, prison went up. But of course, that's the wrong question. Right? The question is, how much faster would crime have gone up had we not used prison? And I think it would have gone up faster. That's not to say that was a smart use of resources. Some of the better work suggests that you know, policing is a much more effective way of fighting crime than, than prison. Fewer Cost to the offenders, you avoid the crime rather than punishing after the crime. Uh, it's cheaper, it works better. Prison played a big role in this crime job. It was not, it was a very blunt, sledgehammery kind of approach. Sure. We could have been much more strategic about it. Okay, I don't think it's perfect either, but you're saying it's about 25%, 25% of the drop in crime attributed to the rise in incarceration. Those are sort of the, the best numbers, and that, that only goes up through the drop to around 2000. We don't really know how much a role plays past around 2000. It gets harder to to estimate it after that. Okay, I bring that up because in a 
widely read article in The Atlantic, Tanahasi Coates talked about the black family in the age of mass incarceration. I think 90% of the article was great. It was very, it, it talked about people, talked about human costs, but he really only spends a paragraph talking about what we're talking about, which is how much does the incarceration rate really bring the crime rate down? He really only cited only two points of data. One is that, and I'll read here, in the latter half of the 20th century, crime rose and then fell in Nordic countries as well. During that period of rising crime, incarceration rates held steady in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Quote, if punishment affects crime, but declined in Finland, if punishment affects crime, Finland's crime rate should have shot up. So he's talking about other countries had similar crime rates, ebbs and flows as ours, but they didn't similarly incarcerate. So that's one data point. And then he quotes a sociologist named Bruce Western, contradicting what you just said. Bruce Western looked at the growth in state prisons in recent years and concluded that a 66% increase in state prisons between 93 and 2001 reduced the rate of serious crime by 2 to 5%. Right. So Let's take them one by one. So I think international comparisons are always very difficult. And I think also, at least in the United States, we basically don't need to do international comparisons. We have 50 countries here, right? Different states punish states for different reasons. States are the reasons. laboratories they're, of democracy. And yes. from, an, from a statistical point of view, there are 50 different states doing 50 different things. Yeah. You know, the connection between prison and crime is not one-to-one, right? A lot of things cause crime to fall, and prison was not the only one. And we don't really have a good sense of exactly how much each part is worth. You know, I, someone at a conference once made a comment that everyone kind of laughed and ignored it. And to me, it was actually a very alarming statement but that I think he was right. He said, if you take every paper that says this factor explains X percent of the crime drop, this change explains 5 percent, this explains 10 percent. If you add up all the percents, yeah. it's like we've explained 250 percent of the crime drop. It's like the investors and the producers. They, have, they sold something like 300 percent of right. the show. Yes. And so to me, that means that there's something actually, you know, each of these papers alone makes sense. 5 percent, yeah, 10 percent, yeah, that's yeah. plausible. Right. If you add them up and it's not plausible, that means there's something more complicated that, that we're missing. No one, I don't think anyone says prison caused the crime drop, right? The question is, how much did it matter? And the converse is that, is that, you know, the rise in crime didn't necessitate more people in prison, right? Because other countries saw similar rises in crime. They didn't increase their prison populations, right? There was a political choice to it. But I think a lot of the political choice was driven by crime and by the fact that historically, the one place we are very unique is lethal crime, right? Yeah. That you're much more likely to be killed in the United States. Now, low probability of being killed but much higher than elsewhere. And that drives our the politics of crime a, a lot more. Yeah. And also, guns mean that people are more arrestable, right? We have this very potent thing that you could put a lot of people in America in jail for that you just can't put people in jail for in Japan or Sweden or right. these other places. And I think considering the, the Bruce Western estimate, I mean, when it comes to sort of estimating the the impact incarceration has on sort of people's employment and wages and marriage and things like that. I think Western's work is among some of the best that's out there. Uh, but when it comes to estimating the effect of prison on crime, I mentioned there's the good studies and the bad studies, the stronger and the weaker yeah. studies. His fall on the weaker side. And, and the main problem we have is that, you know, states with higher crime rates are going to put more people in prison, right? So you're generally going to see that high crime states have high prisons. That makes it look like prison doesn't work. But the reason why they have high prisons is because they have high crime. And you've got to control for that fact that, you know, crime makes prison go up, prison makes crime go down. That interaction effect for empiricists is one of the deadliest tricks out there to handle. Um, and some studies do a better job, some do a worse job. And if you don't treat it well, you're going to give too low a, a measure of, of the impact of prison on crime. General consensus in the world of criminologists, what numbers, like, would, m- okay, maybe general consensus is hard, but 
that two to five percent figure, that would be seen by the vast majority of criminologists as a pretty low estimate, overly low. Am I right? I think the safest way to put it is all criminologists would agree that that is on the low end of the estimates, right? Whether or not they agree at the higher ones or the lower ones, there's less of a consensus there than I would I would like. I think it's a very politically charged issue, yes. and I think oftentimes people's political views tend to drive which studies they, they trust more, uh, left and right alike. Right. And um, you could believe, as you do, that 25, that it did have a big effect, but it's still something that is in dire need of reform today. Exactly. Yeah. I, especially today, because most of our estimates are looking at sort of the, the higher crime, lower incarceration era when prisons would be most effective. You know, so the Brennan Center had a recent report on this, and they basically said, no, it mattered a lot in the past. It has no effect today. You know, and, and anecdotally, this strikes me as true because whenever there's a high-profile crime, it seems to me, and it's one of these guys where we find out about his background. Like, anytime one of these guys kidnaps a poor woman and keeps her for 20 years or whatever, or many serial killers, you know, if you go through the history of serial killers, they were all, it seems like they were all arrested and kicked for pretty, pretty bad crimes. Like guys who served, look at Manson, right? You can't just take one guy. But almost all these kidnappers, especially sexual offenses, those were hardly ever incarcerated at, for long terms in the 70s and 80s. And then not that everyone who comes out commits a crime, but it seems like a lot of these guys who commit serious crimes had short jail terms in the 70s and 80s. I think the tricky thing is that I think most people who commit serious crimes are going to have very long records. Yeah. Right? But a lot of people who commit crimes early on don't go on to commit more crimes later. Right. Right. So there's kind of this, this anecdotal saying they know 90 percent of all adult prisoners have a juvenile record. But 90% of those are juvenile records never offend again. Sure. Right? So you're right that the, the serious offenders always have these you no know, prior arrest convictions. They didn't serve a lot of time. But plenty of people who have those prior arrests and don't serve a lot of time never show up again in the system. But I think the current debate is, well, what does a juvenile record mean? Is it turnstile jumping? Is it, you know, two ounces of marijuana? At least that's the narrative. But sometimes the record could be pretty violent crimes. And there was a time when you didn't serve a lot of jail time on pretty violent crimes. It's true. Although amount of time actually spent in prison, at least my research suggests, hasn't changed that much. It hasn't that, changed that, that much. You know, the, the sentences on the books have gotten much tougher. Mm-hmm. And I think that matters because at the plea bargain process, the DA can sit down and say, take, you know, before we take two years or I'll hit you with five at trial, now I'll take two years, I'll hit you with 20 at trial. Yeah. Right? So you're, you're more likely to take the plea to two years because they've got a bigger hammer when they come into the plea bargain room. But it is not, I mean, there's not everyone agrees with me about this, but my general sense is that, you know, the amount of time actually spent in prison hasn't changed. We're just sending a lot more people to prison for those, for those terms. And one thing I'd say, too, is, you know, when it comes to, like, you know, violent records, the flip side is also true that lots of crimes that get classified officially by the state as being a violent crime aren't necessarily the kind of crimes that cause actual harm. Right. right? So in both New York State, a very blue state, and in it's either Mississippi or Georgia, a fairly red state, burglary of a house is classified as an officially, quote, violent crime, right? Even if no one is home, even if the burglar is unarmed, so there's no risk of actual harm, that's a violent offender, right? So to the extent that we say, no, over half of all state prisoners are in prison for violent crimes, not drug crimes, but violent crimes. One question is, though, but how sort of actually physically harmful was that violent crime. Right. And for many of them, their, the actual amount of physical harm wasn't bad. But when we call them violent, what jumps to mind is murder, aggravated assault. It's something where someone's like seriously A violent injured. crime would seem that the criminal committed violence upon someone. Right. But anytime you, I think most states, if you commit a felony and have an unlicensed firearm, that's a violent crime. And 
the person wasn't necessarily going to use it. There might not even be a per like burglaring an empty right. house. And yes, okay. The New York Times recently had a really effective tool, which kind of went right at the idea that all we have to do is take the people unfairly sentenced for small amounts of drugs and take them out of prison will solve a lot of the problem. You get to what percent of the problem if you, you know, take low levels of drug possession? out of our prisons. So if you take, there was a recent study that using slightly old data, because that's the best data we have, they look at how many drug offenders are truly low-level nonviolent. Not just what did they plead guilty to, but you know, you might have pled guilty to possession, but you actually had a lot of drugs on you. That's right. part of the plea deal. But they actually look at how much did they actually have? Did they actually have a gun? Was there actual violence involved? It comes to about, they said about 7% of all drug offenders are truly low-level. And the state system, drug offenders are only about 15% of the population, right? So it's about 1% of all people in state prisons are there for truly low-level, nonviolent drug offenses. Now, low-level drug offenders, federal low-level drug offenders, those are the people, the inmates who Obama let out. But once we start letting out low-level drug offenders, federal, state, whatever, who's the next best group of people to start letting out? I mean, so there's property offenders, right? They make up about 20%. Uh, there's also, you know, like I said, not all people who are classified as violent offenders necessarily engaged in acts we think of as, as particularly violent, harmful to people. The other thing, too, and you, you touched on this a minute ago, is that, you know, we tend to have this view that you are, if you're convicted of a violent crime, you are just a, you are a violent person. It's not, it's a very, it's a permanent condition. You're sort of tagged as violent, and that's a, a label we think mm -hmm. sticks with you, which doesn't describe how people actually act. People age into and age out of violence, right? So... I generally say, you know, you, you don't start become violent until you're about, you know, 18. But the fact of the matter is you're violent when you're two, right? One of my two-year-old twins threw a rock at her brother's head and was very honest about it. She said, yes, I threw it at his head. And well, she, she was trying to for the plea deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She, she, was, she was admitting to guilt. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Showing remorse. So, <laughs> Plays well before the parole board of mom and dad. She, she's she's well-trained. So, you know, young kids, you know, you age into property crime like in your early teens. You become violent. You, you're, if you're going to engage in violent behavior, that tends to manifest itself later in life, like in your late teens. And when time you're in your 30s or your 40s, you tend to sort of age out of crime, violent crime, right? Either, you know, there are hormonal shifts, so various hormone levels change, or just, you know, when you're 40, you're not going to get in that bar fight because you know you're going to lose, right? I turned 40 a couple weeks ago. I know, like, I would not get in a fight now. Like, I feel Your days like, of brawling with sailors <laughs> exactly. at the docks are behind you. Yeah. Exactly. I, my joints ache a lot more than they used to. Mm -hmm. So, in, again, no, at any given point, some people in their lives are more violent than other people. Right? There are people who, when they're 18 and I'm 18, they're more violent than me. And they'll be more violent than me when they're 30 and when they're 60. But they're not equally violent over the course of their life. So this idea that we need like, you know, lock up an 18-year-old until he's 90 to keep him from being violent ignores the fact that they're actually going to stop being violent later on. And you really don't get any deterrence for it either. Right? The other argument is, well, we, if we threaten you with an 80-year sentence, you won't do it in the first place. Yeah, that doesn't work. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence that people who are at risk of engaging in criminal behavior tend to put very little weight on the future. So a five-year sentence, 10-year sentence, 50-year sentence, it doesn't deter. So I've not seen a lot of studies that show that the severity of punishment, at least in America, as opposed to Saudi Arabia, really determines anyone from anything, including the death penalty, doesn't stop people from killing. The evidence suggests that to the extent deterrence works, it's about sort of the cop on the corner, right? Seeing the cop car there, you rethink it, mm -hmm. right? But you know, sort of certainty, if I do this, I'll get busted. Like that works, right? But the magnitude doesn't matter so much, yes. right? So it's, it's, it's as if our laws are written by people who aren't violent criminals. <laughs> and, and, and haven't bothered to study what we know about violent criminals yeah. and, and yeah. criminals in general, right? It's very much designed to make these political points. 
Right, and fear of getting one wrong. Like, right. let's say we address the problem. We start letting a large percentage out. Someone's going to make that decision. And someone who's let out is going to offend again. You know, can you take the heat? Will society demand that you put these people back in right. jail? Let's, in our hypothetical, get all the truly nonviolent drug offenders out. Let's get out the 80-year-old guy who committed a crime with a gun when he was 18. You know, where can we get... We have the highest incarceration rate. It's what? At about 700 people per 100,000? Yeah. So the 700 number is including both prisons where we send convicted felons. And it also includes jail. That includes both people awaiting trial and people serving shorter misdemeanor sentences. The the incarceration rate just for prisons is around 500 per 100,000. Okay, 500. So let's say we cut it by, I don't know, half. So we'd still be, uh, this is like around, this is not Swedish or Finland levels. We're talking about Latvia, Colombia, Mongolia levels of incarceration. But still, we're not worse. Are we going to be letting out some truly dangerous people? Can we cut it in half with just the people that we're fairly certain aren't going to offend again and maybe shouldn't be there in the first place? I mean, there's certainly a risk that some crime might go up. Sure. I think if we're willing to cut prisons, but also place that money into reentry, right? The more you sort of focus on sort of reentry or even sort of avoiding sort of the underlying sort of causes in the first place, it's not going to be free, right? If all we do is simply let them out and provide no support. Yeah. That's going to be risky, right? Of course, keeping in mind the fact that we're assuming, as we do, that we're not counting the crimes committed in prison as crimes, right? Mm-hmm. One reason our crime rate is so low in part is because, you know, aggravated assault rates in prison are actually higher than they are, or assault rates in prison are higher than they are in the general population, but they don't show up in our crime statistics. Murder rates are lower in prison, not surprisingly, but other kinds of offenses are higher. So, you know, the overall crime rate might go up in official statistics, but we're not, that's because in part we're not measuring a significant portion of crime. But, you know, we right now, at least we are seeing that, you know, states that are letting people out of prison, the states that are decarcerating aren't seeing a rise. Many of them, most of them are not seeing a rise in crime. Most states are letting people out and seeing crime fall. That doesn't mean that prisons are causing crime, right? It could be the fact that the rates would have fallen even faster without this, mm-hmm. right? But keep on, New York, you've talked about New York having this giant drop in crime, right? New York State's also been the state with the single longest period of decarceration. We've been decarcerating now for over a decade, about 1% per year. We sort of dropped our population by 20,000 and seen our crime rates continue to, to steadily decline. So I think there is a lot of room, right? Could we get all the way to cut 50 without letting out serious people, seeing some uptick in crime? That's trickier. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I think the one thing that does get lost a lot in the So we can't, you, don't, you think it's unlikely we could have our prison population not see an uptick in crime? It's possible, right? And yeah. the, the problem is that, again, it comes down to our, our inability to understand what's driving the crime drop, right? So if you believe the crime drop was less prisons and more, say, like there's the, the abortion theory, right? There's a core of criminals that weren't born because of Roe v. Wade that Steve Levitt became famous for. Sure. There's another theory. I know why people love that theory for a few reasons, and it's so fascinating and counterintuitive, but it can't possibly explain most of the crime drop. It could explain it, but if you look at the actual scope of the increase in abortions that followed Roe v. Wade, it's a, it's a dramatic spike. Yeah. Right? So the fact, and, and the timings work out such that it's plausible that it could have a, a meaningful effect, right? He's not arguing it's all of it, but he argues it's, it's up there in the okay. like 20s percent. Okay. There's the other big theory that almost perfectly coincides with Roe v. Wade, which makes it hard to separate them, of, you know, lead exposure. Right. Right. They see it's decline lead. So if you think the drop in What crime, about the crack trade, or is that more of a cause than an effect? Well, no. So, so the idea behind the, the crack trade isn't so much that crack went away because yeah. use levels are high, yeah. but the market's kind of stabilized. Right. Right? We now know this is my corner, this is your corner, because right? most crack-related violence wasn't the addicts, it was the, the gangs, and they've sort of worked out 
things now is, is the theory. So if you think it's more those kinds of broader social shifts and not prison, then conceivably we could let people out of prison now without seeing much of an increase in crime because it's not really prisons that play that big a role, right? especially today. Could you get all the way to 50 percent? That's such a vast experiment that there's no way to empirically say. Could you do a sizable cut and expect crime rates not to rise? I think so. At the same time, I think one thing reformers overlook is that for all this drop in crime that we've seen, and it's been dramatic, right? If you're 42 or 43 or younger, you've never lived in a safer America than you do today. Yep. If you're alive in 1960, the country's still twice as violent as it was then. Right, so violent crime rates, despite all this drop, were still twice as violent as they were in 1960, which is one reason I think why you see all the older politicians resisting reform. Yeah. Right? As much as I think they're wrong to resist it, I, I'm sympathetic to where they're coming from. This is still a much more violent country than what they were when they were younger. To me, that's the biggest risk reform faces is that the boomers right now are not saying that they care about crime. They're focused much more on their retirement, which makes sense. But if crime goes up, they're a giant voting block for whom... This is still kind of a scary country compared to their youth, and I can understand why they might swing back. So we're going to hold it right there with Professor John Pfaff. He's going to come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about rehabilitation. We're going to talk about the huge role that prosecutors play. I'm going to ask him what he thinks of the idea, the term, the concept of the prison industrial complex. Be tomorrow on the gist. The gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi demands that she not be asked to name any state capitals of states that don't touch oceans or a Great Lake. Just executive producer Andy Bowers demands that lanyard making not be included in consideration of his final merit badge evaluation. The gist, we humbly demand that no footage of our notes be broadcast, lest viewers discern that we spent the entire show writing over and over again the words, Mr. Libby Pataki in looping cursive in our speckled notebook. And with that, I give you two They Might Be Giants. They debut a new Dial-A-Song every Tuesday. The number to call for Dial-A-Song is 844-387-6962. Or keep it locked right here. The gist, your home of the hits. Hits being defined as the deep catalog of They Might Be Giants. Or this, this is a song written by Danny Weinkoff, They Might Be Giants' bass player. It won an international songwriting competition in 2015. I think you'll see why. I give you elephants.
on the land So when I say please step away I know you'll understand We've got two tusks apart for fighting Or digging in the dirt So you can see how easily You'd end up getting hurt Get out of the way Get out of the way The elephants are coming through your town today Get out of the way Get out of the way The elephants are coming through your town today Coming through your house today 